I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Hitha Palapu is a self-proclaimed multi-hyphenate, but it's fitting because she is the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. She is a mother. She is a daughter. She is the author of three books. She is a social media influencer, and she does all of these things simultaneously without losing any authenticity. And they all seem to work together and they don't undermine any of the other pieces of what she's trying to do. So she can write a book about how to pack and how to travel with your family. She has a social media presence where she talks about the books that she's reading with a focus on romance novels. But none of those things seem to detract or take away from the fact that she is a serious professional woman. And I love that she's embracing all of these aspects of her personality, of what makes her, her. And it only strengthens who she is, what she's putting out in the world. And I think it makes her more magnetic as a person. And I believe a stronger leader because she's opening up with her interests, her vulnerability. And yes, she's showing a side of herself, but she's also showing how she navigates life and how she is doing it in a way where she is unafraid to be authentically Hitha. So I feel like I do know you because I follow you on social media. And I don't know, is that an intentional thing that you want people to feel when they're experiencing you through the various multi-hyphenate ways in which you exist in the world? Mother, daughter, wife, CEO, author, uh, I could keep going, but is that something that you want people to feel like they they do know you? Yes. The best compliment I get is when someone meets me for the first time after having followed me or engaged with my content for a while and says, you're exactly how you seem from online. To me, that just validates that I am on the right path, that if people feel like they're seeing the real me, granted, it is but a sliver of my life. It is not the whole life. And there's quite a bit I do keep private. It does feel good. That authenticity and that relationship feels really authentic. You are, as I mentioned, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. And you're also an author, a mother, all of those things. I just also want to understand, you keep them sort of separate. You have your business life, which is being the CEO of this company. And then you have all of the other multifaceted ways that you share the books you like, your packing tips, your family. Mm -hmm. Is that a compartmentalization so that you can balance those things being both of those people? Yes and no. So much of what I do, especially in life sciences, where development programs do stay secretive until you know a product gets approved by FDA and is officially on the market, there's not a whole lot I can disclose about the day-to-day of my job, save for big announcements that are made in the press after a lot of lawyers have reviewed to make sure we're not doing any kind of pre-approval marketing. So I have to keep a lot of those worlds separate. However, I am mostly happy to talk about what it's like being a CEO, my personal experiences and the challenges 
that come with being a leader of an organization from raising money to managing people, multi-generational management of people and relationships. So by design, it has to stay separate. However, I do try to show up as my full self and I do wear many hats or embrace many hyphens all at once as all of us do. So some things have to stay compartmentalized, but I do try to show up as this full-fledged person that I am, you know, how I create content has helped me become a more effective communicator in my day job. Similarly, what I've learned about program management and keeping multiple things running at the same time and having things running in parallel have helped me build businesses while being, you know, hands-on with my kids and devoted to my family. So it's both and, if I can say that, as well as the idea of compartmentalization rigorously and on everything is something I fundamentally reject just because we don't live compartmentalized lives, despite how much the narrative might be there. And I think that's a big part of what the second shift is about is it is but one life and it's on us to figure out how to live it to the fullest while also protecting our peace and our health. And so there have been times where I have taken a conference call while picking my kid up from school and having to say, here is a snack eat it and hold my hand while we're walking home. And I'm on the phone with a vendor or one of my team members talking through a current situation. Or I put on TV for my kids to watch while I'm finishing writing the newsletter, you know, on a Saturday afternoon after we visited the playground and met up with some friends and gone out to brunch. So it is but one life. I think it's an interesting model for how you think about CEOs, right? So we think of a CEO as somebody who sits like at the tippy top and is this like, you know, wearing a power suit. And that's a model and a version of, especially women in power, that people like you are really showing how to be 360 degrees and still be that person. And so it's really a new model for how you can show female leadership. And I think it's really like fascinating because you're, you're operating on a really high level and a high frequency in all of the things that you do. And clearly that's just your temperament because what looks like it could be incredibly exhausting to one person is probably the thing that keeps you going and is energizing to someone like you. I mean, and I think I need to do a better job of showing like me in bed by 10 o'clock most nights because I have to be in order to get a good amount of sleep to show up and perform the next day. I try to show some of the quick, healthy meals that I make for myself that is like an easy smoothie that is super nutrient dense because I don't have time to sit and actually eat something, but I can put something in a cup with a giant straw and chug it as I'm answering emails. I do think it's important to also show the decisions that you make. So that aren't as glamorous, that are the sort of rote, mundane broccoli habits or broccoli rituals you need to have to be able to show up and do all of the things. And so sleep is something I definitely prioritize. I need seven hours. I cannot do what I do without good amount and good quality of sleep. I try to, as much as I love Taco Bell and Wawa and people who follow me on social know this, it is very much a treat that's maybe once or twice a month. And the rest of the time I'm running to sweet grieve most of the time to get that salad that may not be what my heart wants, but what my body needs. And 
it's not sexy or fun or indulgent, but it is my reality most days. I'm very honest that we cook from the freezer a lot when it comes to the kids' meals and my meals. I don't have time to prep the kinds of meals I wish I could in this chapter of our life, but I'm so grateful for frozen veggies and pre-cooked rice packets and pre-washed spinach because you could throw together something that is nutritious and good for you rather quickly. And I'm also a sucker for adding cottage cheese and at basically everything to sneak that protein in for my kids. So I want us to also embrace these little solutions that we find that work for us and share them more publicly to just show that I'm not out every single night. The nights I am out, I do share that. And I probably do need to do a better job of showing this is what my normal night is, or this is what a normal morning is. And normalizing that what you see on social media is oftentimes the exception. It's not the rule. And it's the rules that I follow or the rituals I enforce and prioritize on the regular that help me do the things. And I also want to talk about delegating. Like I'm not doing everything. I have a wonderful team at home, my caregiver, my housekeeper, who help the household run smoothly. I have parents who spend a lot of time with us that help lift the load on cooking and on helping out with the kids. I have a great partner and my husband who very much takes on a fair load and more importantly, takes on the stuff I am not good at and that he very much is. So that frees up my energy and my headspace to do what I do well. And we're not doing this alone. And the village is how I think any successful person, especially successful women, need to have in place to get anything done. I recently had Taco Bell for the first time. My son is obsessed with it. And I had always had like this vision that I don't, it just grossed me out a little bit. (laughs) And I had it because he's obsessed with hard shell tacos and it's delicious. So props to you to just like putting it out there that you love Taco Bell because I get it now. (laughs) I fully get it. Um, but yeah, I feel like I was late to the game and I fully embrace that it is a tasty, tasty treat. Let's go back for a second, just to walk through Mm -hmm. how you got to where you are today. How did Hitha become Hitha? Hitha became Hitha when I was like five years old. And anytime a grown up asked me what I wanted to be, I come out with some outlandish thing. Like I had a phase where I wanted to be Mr. T from the A-team because I really liked all his jewelry. And I thought the idea of riding this tricked out van seemed fun. But then my mother would follow it up with, and a doctor. That followed me from when I wanted to be a pop star to a jewelry designer to a boss lady, which my six-year-old self viewed that watching my aunt in real estate as wearing really cool suits and showing people around and negotiating hard. So it's <laughs> my not untrue. Always, not untrue. She'd always follow it up with and a doctor. And I think that and the abuse of and really just seated in my brain at a very young age that I could be many things. I didn't have to just be one thing. And that has kind of followed me throughout. I'm someone who's both deeply analytical as well as very creative. And when I entered university, like every good South Asian child, I thought I would be a doctor or a lawyer. So I studied chemistry and history thinking I'll go to medical school or law school. 
I didn't either. I went into technology sales with Cisco Systems right out of college. And then after a couple of years there, my father at the time, he had become an entrepreneur when I was in university. His company had started to grow and they needed to hire. And my dream had always been to work with my father one day. He said, why don't you come on board, start off as a project manager, learn the ropes. And if this works, great. And if not, you can go back into tech or you could do something else. You can move into a different part of industry. Or be a doctor. I could always go take my MCAT and go to medical school. But what happened is I really loved working with him. I really loved what we were doing in reformulating existing products for patient benefit, hospital pharmacist benefit, whatnot, and making sure these things were also priced accessibly and affordably. And when I started working with him, I knew I needed a creative outlet to satisfy that part of my brain. And I couldn't just be all technical all the time. So I did what anyone in 2009 did at that time. And I started a blog called Hitha on the Go. And, you know, at the beginning, it was like everybody else's a little bit of fashion, a little bit of food, over decorating my tiny studio apartment and posting pictures of it on the internet. I kind of cringe now, but I'm also grateful for that journey as, as it happened. And then when I started talking about and writing about how I was packing for my business trips and that these were often two to three stop trips over 10 days in a carry-on, I had made every single packing mistake you possibly could make. And it was in time that I figured out a system that worked for me. And as I started sharing it, that's what really made my blog take off. And so the worlds were intertwined. I was traveling because of my pharmaceutical career, but I kept the details of my job, you know, private as it needed to be. But the experiences I had because of the job became great inspiration for the content and the advice I started sharing. And that blog led way to my book, How to Pack. And I was actually approached to write the book the day I came back from the hospital with like my newborn son. And I thought like the meds were still hadn't worn off because I was like, am I, am I hallucinating this? Is, is this for real? Someone, someone Google this publisher and tell me. And my husband's like, it's an imprint of Penguin Random House. You should absolutely take the meeting, see what happens. And I remember so specifically, I had my week-old son in his car seat at the Le Pan Quotidien, just on Central Park South, and meeting with this editor who said, we love your blog, you're going to expect an offer letter from us soon, and we can't wait to work on this book with you. And I'm like, oh, this is happening. I I just <laughs> had a baby. I'm about to launch a company, and now I'm writing a book. And my dad and my husband both were like, shouldn't you pick a different timing? Like, this isn't right. My mom, on the other hand, said, nothing like this ever happens. You need to say yes. We will make it work. We will make it work for you. And so just like my mom is the reason I am this professional multi-hyphenate because of what she said when I was a kid, she is also the reason I continue to be a multi-hyphenate to this day and jumping in and really making sure I make my wildest dreams come true. And that is a gift I can never, ever repay, but that my book happened because of her as much as it did for me. And that's why I think it's so important to talk about your village and to show your village that helps you do the things you do because I couldn't do anything if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for our home team, if it wasn't for my teams that work. 
that let me focus on the things only I can do. That's the first book you wrote, but you've written additional books since then. The Um, second book, yes. Yeah. We're Speaking happened very much the same way. So I stopped blogging in 2018 when I found out I was pregnant with my second and Roshan Pharma really started taking on a new level of work and required my full commitment. And so I could not keep up the blog with the same quality and frequency that my community was used to. And I think that chapter, I was ready to kind of close it at that time as well. So it's still there and it's a wonderful archive of eight years of content, but I um, pivoted to Instagram and a newsletter really focusing on five smart reads, which is five news stories to help you start the day informed without being overwhelmed and in under five minutes. And with that, I was talking a lot about the upcoming election and talking a lot about why I was a Kamala Harris supporter and what about her policies and her story that really gravitated me towards her. And so obviously it was sad when she dropped out of the race, was thrilled when she was named the vice president. And I was also pretty active in volunteering with the Biden-Harris campaign as well during 2020. So a week after the election had been called, I get an email from an editor whose the books that she's edited I loved asking if I would be interested in writing a smart, servicey, advice-driven book gleaned from the lessons of our new vice president. And again, I was like, this really doesn't happen twice. It is like lightning hitting, striking twice. And it was a dream project. And again, my whole family basically moved in to help with the kids. My husband was on a sabbatical at the time and completely handled everything at home. So I could basically retreat into a cave for about three months and write this book, which I did. And I'm still not over. So from that first email to pub date was about 11 months, which is just insane. And it does not happen in publishing. So I'm really proud of the book. I had to reread it recently to prepare for a keynote speech I was giving. And to this day, I'm still like, oh, Like a lot of these lessons continue to hold up even more so today, especially when it comes to women as leaders have always been reported on by men and seeing the rise of women-led and feminist-first journalism is starting to push back against it and show the whole story or show a whole person versus shoving someone into a predefined narrative or box that's really been written for the comfort of men, and the security of men. Yeah. I like the quote that you have highlighted of hers. And I feel like it's very apt when we talk about you and your life, which is owning the power of your multitudes, because that seems to be exactly what you're doing in your own life and, and how important that is to you as becoming yourself and like how you lead, how you parent, how you are in the world. And that's something that's really important for women. And over the past few years, we've lived in a world in COVID and post-COVID where our personal private lives smushed together. And we learned that like showing up authentically is actually better for business, better for your mental health, better for your families. And it's a way to connect with other people and have vulnerability. And that is such an essence of female leadership. 
Yes. That we are multitudes, that we are all of these things. And instead of trying to pretend that we're not or like boxing us into certain things, like I'm a mother here and then I'm a sister here and then I'm a CEO here, that like we're just all of the things. And there's mm-hmm. incredible power in owning that. Yes. I refuse to shrink myself for someone else's comfort. And if you can't handle me and all my multitudes, then you don't deserve me. So on that note, talking about Kamala Harris, um, this is not a political podcast, but I assume you have to change some of the things that you're talking about when you're going into this keynote speak based on Mm -hmm. where we are today, the next election, and a little bit of the lens of how the public and the press are viewing the vice president and how has that affected you? You know, when people hear you write a book about the vice president, somehow they think you become her spokesperson or you work for the administration in some sort of formal capacity. And what I try to remind people of, while my book is about a politician, it is not a political book. This is not based in political reporting or really focused on her record or the work of the administration. This was written based on her work before she officially was even sworn in as vice president. So a reset on that. The second is asking them what they think and then why they think that way. And then presenting some counters because as someone who does read to curate the news for people on a regular basis, I will say I have to hunt for fair reporting on what she's actually doing because I've noticed a really troubling pattern the media has when reporting on powerful women, which is, we've seen this across both in politics and in the private sector and in entertainment, which is the buildup, the anointment, the teardown, and the erasure. And this has happened, you know, I think we could talk about this from the girl boss phenomenon of the late 2000s, early 2010s, that you saw with a lot of female leaders who raised a lot of ventures, scaled companies. And for a myriad of reasons, those companies didn't necessarily work out. But again, they never got the benefit of the doubt and the reset that so many male leaders who have had similar stories did. I think that's totally true. And then I read a recently read an article about this criticism because I Mm -hmm. too, I don't really have an opinion about Kamala Harris because she's the vice president. And at the end of the day, like, your job isn't really to do that much. You know, who remember, like Dan Quayle was not like a memorable vice president, you know, but there's Mm -hmm. a slack that is given to people that are not given to women. And I don't like to make everything into like, no, that's the patriarchy. No, that's, uh, you know, gendered Mm -hmm. and racist um, or misogynistic. But- I'm glad you asked people that because when you ask why, no one really has a great idea. She's not a great speaker. Okay, was Dan Quayle? The vice president, most people remember, was the one who was the most destructive under George Bush. So like, maybe it's better if we don't remember that much and we just feel that she's a competent human who has had a lot of success in life. And we don't need to look at whether or not, you know, we like her words or she's a good speaker or her clothes are cool or not. And I will just say, 
not to make this about politics because it's yes. not, it's mostly about pointing out a double standard. And I then if people say, well, what is she doing? And I go, well, name a vice president who was consequential in some way. Like, are you holding her to a different standard because she's the first vice president we've seen that's a woman, that's a woman of color, a black woman, an Asian woman, and that's, you're holding her to a different standard because of her differences? Or are you buying into some of what is very profitable kind of reporting on her? Because outrage and anger and frustration gets clicks and engagement. Good stories, feel good stories or stories about accomplishment. Not so much. So you have to remember why the media chooses to report on some things and not report on others and why they choose to craft narratives based on not necessarily a full objective set of data. Exactly. I mean, I was I was thinking about this recent CNN poll that has now been cited everywhere. It was an internal poll from CNN that polled 60 percent Republicans or Republican leaning voters on who they would prefer and putting together a lot of the GOP nominees against Joe Biden. And even then, in this very right-leaning poll, Biden was losing by 1.2 points, or in the case of Nikki Haley, six points. But again, this is not an objective poll, but it's done to incite clicks, incite emotion. And so I really try to take the pressure down and take the emotion out and just ask the very open-ended questions designed for curiosity. And I'm very also clear when I approach political conversations and I say, you have your opinions. I have my opinions. I respect that. I'm not here to change anyone's mind, but I'm always curious at how people come to their opinions. So I'd love to learn how you came to this opinion. And you're asking people, yeah, you're asking people to have a lot of context that people don't really want to spend any time creating. Exactly. Um, Sorry, I forgot I got off track on a tirade, but the article no, but I think- had had read was talking about how one of the things that's interesting is like, isn't it equal? All vice presidents wind up getting like taken down for the way they speak, for not doing anything, for doing too much. That isn't an equality in some ways to you're, you take down men, you take down women. So you can't make, you know, it, it is the same. Is is that something to be celebrated? And I'm a person who likes to think of glasses half full all the time. So I was like, oh, that's an interesting point. You're right. Like the vice president's kind of just like a punching bag in a certain way. Always. So if we're punching her, we're punching, like, is that a quality? I don't know. What do and you, you think? And you know, I do, I do see some of that. Listen, the vice president, as you said, has usually just been can be a convenient scapegoat to protect the president in an administration, particularly in the first term of an administration. It is a no-win job. It is. And that is consistent since John Adams was the very first vice president of this country. So on one hand, absolutely. On the second hand, you never got criticized uh, about some a vice president's laugh or how they looked or the tone of a voice. And there are gender things and they're so subtle that it's hard to outright call it out as misogyny or sexism in any way that it, it like it walks a very fine line. And what I don't find helpful is just immediately defaulting to these terms because again, it lacks context. So if a conversation goes into that direction, I know I'm not going to change anybody's mind. And I typically say, let's agree to disagree at this point. Talk about something else and change the subject. 
It's a little like 2016 PTSD where you're like, oh, we're talking about the clothes again. Like, we can't do this again. Exactly. We can't go back there. Like, it's just too, it's too soon. I can't go back to that place. I'll also just say, you can't get away from talking about politics in today's day and age. Almost everything is political, but you can exercise exiting a conversation with grace and with respect for the other person. And knowing going into any of these conversations, you're never going to change anybody's mind. But what you could do is maybe just share how you came to your point of view, hear from them and make them feel heard as much as they heard you and move on and flow to other things to converse about. And I think that's a very, it speaks to women's leadership because we, I think, know what battles to fight better, especially mothers, because listen, if you're negotiating with a toddler 10 minutes before you have to get out of the house to get their clothes on and to eat something, you know which battle to fight and which not to fight. So if that kid is eating potato chips on the way to school just to get something in their belly, you fight that battle. And I think that speaks to where women rise as leaders is we know we can take a look at the context, immediately prioritize what is the most important and what is of the highest value and what's really not going to matter. And I think we bring that sensibility in everything we do from conversations we have about hard things to managing the family calendar to delegating and figuring out how to build your home team as well as managing your work team. And it's really our superpower that was cultivated out of not having an option otherwise. But I think it's also time to say if we're capable of cultivating these skills and these habits, let's invite men and other people to teach them how to do the same and bring them up to our level versus pandering to what their expectations are and being forced to shoulder oftentimes a greater load. And this is where I think Evrotsky's fair play has really brought a language and a system that allows men to really understand it in the way they understand things professionally done in terms of a project management system and whatnot. So I think work like that is really important in first making things fair before we on the road to equality. And I think that fairness and leaving it to an individual couple to decide what is fair for them gives you the freedom to then figure it out on your own and define these terms on your terms. That's great advice. Now, I'm just wondering what's next for you? There's, it seems like you're always evolving and trying new things. So what's next for you in this journey you're on? We have a lot happening at work that unfortunately I can't share more about, but it is all very critical things. So my Q4 is really just all Russian pharma focused and I have a couple of new content partnerships that I'm very excited about, but I'm really taking a step back from working with a lot of brands. And I just have like two that I'm working with very deeply that I'm very excited about. And that is a nice balance of knowing I'm having revenue to support the larger content business, as well as projects I'm really excited about to help me serve, also stay focused on Russian Pharma. You know, it's fall, so we have all of the holidays coming up. So I would just like to get through that and survive it from Halloween and Deepavali through Thanksgiving and Christmas. I do have another book idea, but I'm tabling, working on the proposal until beginning of 2024 because I just 
don't have bandwidth right now. So that's something I'm excited about, but I'm putting on the back burner for the time being. I would like to just mentally have a, be in a better headspace for the 24 election than I was in 2020 and 2016. And to practice healthy boundaries when it comes to news consumption and political discourse. Because at the end of the day, I do care what happens and I am going to devote whatever time and energy I have to elect the leaders I think are going to best represent us. But I also have my kids. I have my husband. I have my parents and I have my friends. And I also want to prioritize the relationships that have the greatest impact on my life and making sure I'm putting that first. I think that's great advice and a terrific and very long list of priorities. So Thank you for making this a priority and being here and talking about all of the things that you're into and all of the ways in which you look at leadership. And I think it's really cool. You you definitely are a self-proclaimed multi-hyphenate and you live up to it. Thank you. That means a lot. And everyone is a multi-hyphenate. So if there's one thing I hope people take away, it's to just own your hyphens and ditch the boxes. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.